Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. So it's a new year. Is it a new Keir Starmer as he goes to Birmingham today and gives what he hopes is an agenda resetting speech? This is what he had to say. When I reflect on previous Labour governments, I have two thoughts. The first is, what a record we have. These three chapters of change, Attlee, Wilson and Blair, made Britain a better country. We must be the people who write the fourth chapter, the people who create a new Britain in the 21st century. Isabel, what did you make of the speech? Well, he's talking a lot about Labour's contract with the British people and his argument is that he wants Labour to be uh, forward-looking, not to talk so much about the past. He's trying to answer some of the challenges that have been put to him by other people in Labour, uh, by pollsters and so on, which, which is that Labour has, been, has become very good at talking about how rubbish things are in Tory Britain over a very long time now uh, and not so great at sounding optimistic about the future and we did see a sort of preview of that in his conference speech back in the autumn this is him trying to flesh it out a little bit more one of the things he says is I'm well aware that just because the Tories lose the public's trust it doesn't mean Labour simply inherits it trust has to be earned I am confident but not complacent about the task ahead but I think it's still light on the detail of what he sees that task as being and what sort of shape Labour will be in to attract voters in the way that he describes. So he does accept, I think, that he has probably just been feasting on the misfortune of the Conservative Party. And now is the time to explain to voters why they should back Labour rather than just abandon the Tories. But beyond the sort of broad brush contract that he talks about, and he again uh, talks about the importance of patriotism, which... Some in the Labour Party won't like because they think that patriotism is the same as jingoism and racism and so on. But I think generally British voters think, well, you know, why would you get stressed about loving your country and and wanting to make it better? Which is the argument he's making is that being patriotic doesn't mean you think that the, the country is perfect. It's that you want to fix it. Beyond that, there's not a huge amount of sort of policy meat. And you might say, well, it's a bit early for that. You know, the, the election isn't isn't imminent. Labour doesn't want to tie itself in knots yet. But also it does mean that when you come back to Parliament, when you come back to the big debates that are going on, it's largely just Labour either saying you haven't done this or why didn't you do this sooner rather than what about doing this, this new thing that we want to do. James, is that the feeling you get from the speech as well? I think it is a rule of British politics that, that far more often governments lose elections rather than oppositions winning them. And uh, Isabel might have quoted Keir Starmer there saying that, you know, he, he, he doesn't want to just rely on the public falling out of love with the Tories. But you know, that is more what he is doing at the moment than trying to come up with some bold alternative Labour offer. I think it is also worth remembering one of the challenges for oppositions in midterm is you come up with policy... And then the government pinch it, and you are left, uh, and you are left saying, "Oh, that was we thought of it first, But voters don't really see it like that; they just see the government doing it. You know this, this whole issue of um, taking VAT off fuel bills, right, is a classic example of this. Labour have been calling this for ages. I think it is gaining some more traction in Tory circles than it had before. 
if the government were then to do it, Labour would try and claim a victory and claim that they came up with the idea first. But I think most people probably would be less interested in that than the fact that, you know, that VAT has gone from, from their fuel bills. I mean, that's from... I thought the thing, one of the things that I think is striking is that Labour keep trying to say, look, we know that the risk of launching all our attacks on Boris Johnson means that if the Tories were to change leader, we would suddenly be vulnerable in the way that Labour were when the Tories flipped from from Thatcher to Major ahead of the 1992 general election. But however much Labour talk about that, they still run that risk. And I think it is because Boris Johnson's personality still so dominates politics that, you know, Starmer's argument is, you know, that Johnson has lost trust at just the wrong moment, but politics isn't another branch of the entertainment industry. Well, there's really only one member of the cabinet who you would think of as a kind of entertainer in that sense of the word, and that and that is Boris Johnson. And so I think this is one of the, going to be one of the big challenges for Starmer over this year, which is how do you make the most potent attacks on the government when the prime minister is such the dominant figure in the government? But how do you avoid getting into a situation where where your political fortunes are entirely dependent on Boris Johnson staying in place? And Isabel, something else that Keir Starmer said today was that Tony Blair should be given a knighthood. He was obviously named in the New Year's honours list, but more than 500,000 people are not happy about that, according to a petition. What do you make of the whole row? Well, I, th- I think it's funny, a funny state of affairs when it's news that a Labour leader says that one of his predecessors deserves a knighthood, although I, I suspect he Keir Starmer probably wouldn't say that about Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn certainly wouldn't have said that about Tony Blair. And I'd be quite interested, actually, in whether Ed Miliband would have said that about Tony Blair as well, because the the years after Labour lost power involved a lot of Labour figures sort of turning their back on the person who had won them three elections. And uh, this is a very strange row for the Labour Party to be having at all about its only successful leader in the past 40 years. Um, James, keen to hear your thoughts on this, but also do you think it's interesting that the Queen has waited so long to put Tony Blair on that list? So I think actually the scandal is that it has taken so long to knight Tony Blair. Uh, I think that is that is the question. I think there was uh, the kind of... People who know about these things say that there, there was a lingering bitterness in palace circles about some of the advice that Blair dished out to them in the wake of Diana's death and that that was not particularly uh, appreciated, even if it was necessary. Uh, one thing I find very bizarre about this argument is people keep saying, oh, the Iraq war means that Tony Blair shouldn't be given a knighthood. It, this does rather ignore the fact that the British public... Uh, re-elected a Labour government led by Tony Blair in 2005, two years after the invasion of Iraq. So if Iraq was this thing that the, that the British public were so revolted by that they, they thought that, you know, no one involved in that enterprise should, should, should ever be allowed in public life again, they had a very odd way of showing it in the 2005 general election because they re-elected the, that Labour government. And Isabel, finally, on more covid news, there's a discussion at the moment on whether or not looking at Israel, more and more boosters is the way forward, possibly at half a year uh, intervals. Andrew Pollard from Oxford has come out to say on The Telegraph today that that should not be the way forward. But do you think that this is something that the government is considering, considering how much the third wave of vaccinations has helped this Omicron wave? Yeah, I think this is something that ministers are probably going to have to tackle quite 
soon is the question of how many vaccines people are going to have per year against COVID in this country. But I think another question which still hasn't really been answered is whether the government accepts it hasn't done enough in terms of the global vaccination programme, which will bring this pandemic to an end sooner rather than later, rather than having variants uh, appearing in in different countries. Now, you might say that in South Africa, it wasn't a case of vaccine supply being the problem, but it is the case around the world that the vaccination programme is not going great guns in the way that it has in the UK. And James, is that conversation being had about global distribution in government? I mean, I remember it was this time last year that I wrote a cover piece about China and Russia's vaccine diplomacy, but it doesn't seem like the UK really is, you know, seeing that as a priority, despite what Boris Johnson said at the G7. I I think this is a real problem because I think you had this argument before the the booster campaign here arguing that that it would be better to vaccinate more of the world's population than for rich countries to start giving people third doses or fourth doses. I think the problem is, is is that governments will always, and rightly to an extent, always respond to the needs of their own systems. And I think people will look at Israel, which is now giving people a fourth dose, and people here will think, well, hang on a second, if the third dose of the vaccine is why hospitals haven't been overwhelmed, why not give a fourth dose? And I think this is this is going to become quite difficult, I think, for governments, especially because there as you say we are, they are not making massive progress on vaccinating the entire world and i think as isabel alluded to one of the issues is that, that, that yes supply is part of the issue there are also questions about vaccine hesitancy and there's also questions about whether places have the infrastructure necessary to to do the vaccination campaigns and so i think this is i think this debate is going to run on but ultimately i think if you ended up with a situation where you were facing another wave and a fourth dose looked like it would make a difference i think governments will opt go down the route of the fourth dose i mean i think you know know, israel was the the first country to succeed in vaccinating the bulk of its population and often what it does is a quite a good guide to what other countries are going to end up doing in time. And so I would be mildly surprised if this year, at the very least, you don't end up in a situation where uh, healthcare workers and those over 50 are, are offered a fourth dose. James and Isabel, thanks very much. And if you want more political analysis from The Spectator, remember you can sign up to Isabel's Evening Blend newsletter at spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow.